Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. congregations uh, meeting as one church family, Kenmuir Kenmuir Baptist Church and also Seekers uh, Christian Fellowship. Um, How grateful we are to acknowledge that while these two congregations have been separate in their journey, we serve the same Lord, the same Savior, the same head of the church who unites us, who continues to give us grace and sustain us and encourages us in the work that he's called us to. Because the church is an assembly of God's people who have heard his voice and are willing to do the business that he asks of us in the place that we as a church are planted. And this morning, I want you to turn your attention to the passage of scripture that has uh, just been read for us. And really, the, the, uh, the focus of the passage is this whole issue of how people are walking away from Jesus. Uh, There's a large crowd. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the numbers or the categories that are, not the specific numbers, but the categories uh, that have come and are seemingly following Jesus. And then the crisis that is occurring in this chapter, uh, defining whether or not these are going to remain as followers or whether they're going to leave and uh, seek some other way uh, to find the fulfillment in life that they're looking for. In this passage of scripture, I have a question that I want to begin with as we dig into chapter 6, starting in, in, uh, at the end of the chapter, or near the end of the chapter, the last section at verse 60. But the question comes from a premarital assessment form that I know that I and many other pastors um, who have used these tools have used and, and benefited from, and I think the couples that we've done some premarital counseling with Um, have likely benefited as well. And one of the questions that stands out for me, there were 140 questions that each of the couple, that each each of the people, the, the, the man and the woman, will both answer separately, independent, so they don't discuss their answers. Then there's a comparison made between how they've answered and against um, all of those who have taken this, some 100,000 individuals who have done this. And it's very enlightening. And here's the question. Uh, And they're to to answer in one of three ways. They agree with it, they disagree with it, or they're not sure. They have an uncertainty or a maybe. And here's the question. There is nothing that my future spouse would do that would make me doubt my love for them. So if you were asked that question today, how would you answer? Have you ever had that moment? And Perhaps if you have been longer in the journey of marriage, you would realize, well, I would answer that question differently at the beginning of marriage than I would answer it in the middle of marriage. And what what do we mean by that? Is that sometimes we hit those points of pretty sharp disagreement, pretty significant disconnect, and we are really sort of living in a quandary of how it is that we are going to move forward and heal this breach, seek to come together and be united again. In fairness, right? There can be some challenging moments in marriage. 
those of us who have been long enough at it and have enough humility and transparency or candor might admit that it's not always smooth sailing. Probably not what a young couple entering marriage want to hear. And when people will answer that question, I remember as a pastor, and they would say, oh, no, there is nothing in the future that my spouse would ever do that would make me doubt my love for them. I know, oh, they're highly idealistic. They think it's going to be smooth sailing because they have found the person that couldn't possibly disagree with them or ever frustrate them or ever do anything that would cause them to be in a quandary. I'm just here to tell you, knowing that all of us are by nature who we are, it's more than likely uh, going to be some rough waters ahead, right? But if we take that and turn it and say, what is it that we might do if we turn it this way that says, would God ever doubt loving us? Would, would he ever, in his position of being the sovereign Lord and King of the universe, look down on us this morning and say, I paid way too much for them? You understand? I'm reversing the question because that's not the debate in the passage. The, passage in, the debate in the passage is whether or not we will ever be disappointed in God. And will that disappointment, when our expectations aren't fulfilled, when our wants aren't met, when the thing that we feel we have the right to ask of him and he's either frustrating us, not answering us as we hear within the Psalms. You know the cries of the Psalms, don't you? God, where are you? The anguish of the heart waiting upon God for an answer that is slow in coming. And here we will find that there are four responses to a challenging message of the gospel of Jesus in, in this chapter. Because in this passage, the disciples, the followers of Jesus, there are circles of commitment. And I want you just to see a, um, a graph that I've developed. I just put four concentric circles, four groups that we're going to be talking about next. And the first group is identified quite early in the chapter. It's what I want to call the benefited. They show up because they get what they want. It's easy to follow when all your needs are met. Isn't that true? When you're completely looked after, when you're, as a man, when your spouse, your wife looks at you and goes, oh, well, there's nothing that I find offensive about you. I love everything there is about you. And I want to say, just wait. It gets worse. But that's true for our wives as well. I adore you, you know, I, I just want to honor you in every way. And then we're living life and we discover, oh my, this is an adjustment. Right? For, and I don't need to go into the details of how men and women frustrate each other. Some of them belong to the gender divide. Some of them are just plain personality. But when the food stopped, they stopped. And here's the text. Verse 26, Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you that you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you don't care about the message. You're not looking at my ministry. You're not listening to what it is I'm offering you. You just have a full tummy. Is it possible today 
that people are responding to Jesus simply because they have their needs met. Well, that at the heart is what we would call the prosperity gospel. And it will reason things like this. You know, Jesus is the king, your kids of the king. The king wants you to have everything he has. So ask and you will receive. Now, now look, it doesn't mean in the text, or in the scripture, in the gospel, that we don't have the freedom to ask. But to equate that we are going to get whatever we ask is not biblically right. It's error. Well, well if, that, if, if it was not true, there would be no poverty among the Christian community, right? There would be no need within the Christian community, and yet Jesus told us, the poor you'll always have with you. You see, if we are following Jesus because there is an economic benefit, we fit into this category. If Jesus makes us comfortable, and that's our connection to him, he is basically a person that I figure out how to put the right coin, the thing he wants, into the goody machine, and if I get what I want, then everything is okay. But God is not that, is he? And yet here is a group who have full bellies and empty hearts. When the food stopped, they stopped. No benefit, not the benefit I want. Their commitment to follow ended on the spot. Now, there's a second group that we would call the curious. And they could have come for the lunch, but stayed because they saw the miracle. They saw Jesus or heard about him calming the storm. They had seen the other wonders that he had done or perhaps heard about those things. And they were really seeking a little more about who Jesus was. And they're curious. However, as Jesus dives deeply into what his true purpose is and explains that to them, that he really is the one who comes from the Father full of grace and truth, he's going to tell you things that you might not be prepared to hear or even inclined or wanting to hear, but he is not going to withhold the truth from you. So in verses 60 and 62, we read these. When many of his disciples heard it, and what is he talking about? The the previous section where he says, look, you need to eat my flesh. And, And there's two words, you need to eat it. And then he says, you need to go on feeding on my flesh. And you need to drink my blood. In other words, you need to go on gaining nutrition or nutrient or life, actually, is what he says. Life is in my body. And people, this is a really hard saying, right? Is Jesus talking about cannibalism? That might be the first thing that pops into our mind. Or or maybe amongst the crowd that say, what are you talking about? We need to eat you. Well, metaphorically, there's a very powerful message here. He's not talking about communion. Because you see, when you come to the Lord's table, this is not a means of receiving grace. This is a memorial meal that celebrates the grace you have in Christ. In other words, you can come to this table, but you will not receive from God anything by being at the table. You receive it by faith in who Jesus is, not because you eat some elements. And we don't think that Jesus is somehow mystically and magically united in this. Now look, I'm not saying there's no spiritual benefit. I'm not saying that you will not sort of have regard for God and commune with him in fellowship and be in every way encouraged and your faith strengthened. I'm not suggesting that isn't part of this, but what I'm suggesting is that when you eat the bread, it never is anything other than the wafer. 
When you drink the cup, all it is is the grape juice or wine, whatever it is that's being served at the table. Today, the communion table is grape juice and a little wafer. And as you eat that, is there any grace or merit or benefit from God that comes to you because you're sitting at the table and eating these things? The answer is no. No. There is no grace merited by eating at the table. So why do you come and eat the elements from this table? The answer is because in your communion with God, you're in fellowship, you're renewing your covenant. Your mind is appreciating the fact that it took all of him to save you. You're taken apart because it's necessary. You're put together because it's yours. But there's no merit in it. None. Is there blessing? Absolutely. But that's a very different thing than a means of grace. So they're listening to him. They're curious. And then Jesus says this in, in, the, next, in the next verse, in verse 61. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, they're worked up. They're talking between themselves. What does this mean? What is going on? How can this be true? What is he really saying to us? He says, do you take offense at this? In other words, do you not understand what I'm saying to you? And do you find this a hard thing to accept? Because if you find this as a hard thing to accept, what is going to happen when I return to the Father from where I've come? And you see me as what? who I am in glory, ascending. Now, why would we be offended by that? We would be offended by that because Jesus is claiming to be greater than Moses who gave us manna. And Jesus is claiming to be greater than eating the provision of God in the wilderness because, you know, every single person who ate manna in the wilderness had an outcome called death. True? So eating manna, the provision of God, receiving the miracle and being sustained by him does not equate to what? Eternal life. It equates to the provision of God in your life for which you are grateful, but it doesn't sustain you eternally. And what is Jesus saying? I am greater than Moses, and the manna that I am bringing to you is the manna that leads to eternal life, and you need to eat this, and it's only in me. Now, we might look at that and say, that is so curious. What is Jesus talking about? How is it possible that life is in him and we need to consume him? Well, just think about who these people are. They're an agrarian society. What does that mean? They have a close contact relationship with their food. Now, some of you have gardens. Some of you might even have a chicken in the backyard. I doubt it, but it's possible. None of you probably have a goat or a cow or a pig. Like, at least, I don't think there's too many within the city limits that will farm like that. Now, now, if you live outside and you're traveling, of course, that would be different. But, you know, cities have bylaws about animals and whether or not you can have them in your property or keep it in your backyard. In Guelph, I can have nine chickens. I looked it up. I said to Donna, we should have nine chickens. She said, you've got to be kidding. 
I was kidding. I, I couldn't have nine chickens. We traveled too much, all of those kinds of things. But my pastor has chickens, and he gets eggs, and he enjoys them. But you know what happens when you take an egg from the chicken, crack it, and cook it? There's no longer life in the egg. You've killed it. And what do you do? You consume it. Why? So that you can live. Or you do that with the chicken. Or you do that with the carrot. There's a lovely living carrot. You wash it off. You boil it up a little bit so it's softer. Or you consume it on the spot and you kill it so you can what? Eat. You kill your vegetables and you kill your meat. Right? You understand what I'm saying? You have a close, intimate relationship called consumption to live. And Jesus is borrowing that metaphor and saying... You need to receive what I give you because apart from me, you have no life. And in me, you have life eternal. That's powerful, isn't it? That's why it can't be communion. Because when we eat this bread and we drink the cup, it doesn't change us. Right? Who changes us? Jesus. So our faith is not in literally his body that we must eat. So when we come to the table, we do not offer a prayer and, and magically, as it were, supernaturally, in some kind of religious way, transform the element literally into the body of Christ so we can eat him. Some Christian churches teach us, teach that. That's not what we would say the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that you have a spiritual relationship with God through faith, not a physically dependent relationship on Jesus by someone transforming the elements so you can receive and eat grace. No, the Bible says grace comes by what? Faith. And faith comes by what? Hearing. It's the words of Jesus that bring transformation. I'm going to come back to that and explain that a little bit further. So the group of followers has stayed, but their curiosity lacks formal and enduring commitment. And when Jesus explains these things, uh, they are a little taken back. But here's what verse 63 says. It is the spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. Think about that. Your tent, what you walk around in, gives you no benefit to drawing closer to God. Right? None. It isn't what serves you in the way that's spiritual. It's only what the Spirit of God brings to you that makes a change within you. So what this means is God cannot love you more than how he has loved you fully in Jesus. And here's his promise in his character. And he will not love you less. Now, I'm treading right to a line because some of you who read the scripture are familiar with James and you're saying, now, just a minute here, just a minute. Works count for something, right? What? They count as an evidence of the inward reality, but not as a benefit that accrues for you grace. What is Jesus saying? You have nothing to offer God that he wants as a means of exchanging what you give to get what it is you receive. In other words, you cannot 
work yourself or improve yourself to get into heaven. That's what it means. You can't. You see, and that's moralism. Moralism is that thin edge that says, okay, what is it that God really wants me to do? What are the works I need to do? Remember, that's earlier in the chapter. And they go, well, tell me what the works are that God really wants from us. And Jesus said, well, you ought to believe in me. That's the work. Faith is the work. It's to believe what God says to you, not to try and figure out what to do for God so that you can get into heaven on the basis of merit. You can't deserve your way to heaven. You can't grow your way to heaven. You can't earn your way into the kingdom. You can't find a way to make God like you more so that he will give you as a result what you really want which is life eternal, and that is only given to you based on what Jesus does for you. And what does he do for you? He lays his life down as a sacrifice. You see, it's the words of Jesus. It's, it's the meaning of those things that he has done, and we'll come back to that, because after all of these disciples have listened to this, and they said, you, really, like there's... There's no rules to keep. Is that what you're telling me? There's no, there's no merit to earn. I can't kind of deserve it. Like You're deconstructing the whole view of Pharisaism that is the prevailing view of the Scripture in Jesus' day. I need to do all of these things and not do any of those things. And if I do more of these things and less of those things, God will look at me and go, okay, you're in. That's called works. Earning your way. Jesus says you can't earn your way. Because even if you did everything perfectly from this point onward in your life, and you know, and I both know, we've said to God, please, 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 just, I won't do that again. And we've discovered we've done it again, right? I mean, even if it's just our own standard that we judge ourselves against, we fail our own standard. So you cannot keep your promises. You break them all. Right? It has to be outside of you. It has to be what Jesus does for you. But they don't like this answer very much. But they're troubled, and so they're going to leave. So we've seen the first group that no longer sees the benefit. They leave. We see the second group that is confused by just a faith action instead of a works-based religion, and they're leaving. And yet there's a third group identified of which Judas Iscariot is one. And the group can best be identified as pretenders. Now, what is a pretender? A pretender is someone who follows, but follows conditionally. Follows not just as long as what Jesus gives them, but follows because they're still not sure if they're going to put all of their trust in him. So they're following. But they're silent. Right, because when this was asked, you know, who, who Jesus was, and, and he's going to come to this in a moment, who the committed are, it's Peter who speaks up, but Judas is absolutely silent. You could hear a pin drop in that back row. Judas and the rest are silent. It's, it's Peter is the one who speaks up. 
But Jesus is actually speaking about them. And this group is closer to understanding what Jesus is saying, but they either misinterpret it, they lay it aside, they're confused by it, or they find it somewhat offensive, so they're sitting on the fence. They're present because they're still wanting to find out more, but they're not really yet committed. They're sitting in judgment on the fence. And Jesus speaks to that in verse, 60, in verse 63, because in verse 63, he says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So it's not only Judas, Judas is one of that group, but there are others within that group as well. And they see that Jesus is raising the stakes and he's calling for a complete commitment. And I'm convinced at this point, more of them are leaving. And verse 66, the summary of what happens to these disciples as they are confronted with the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the hope of the world, is so clear. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. The crowd became very thin. And Jesus, I'm imagining, was left with himself and the twelve. So Jesus asks this question, and th there's emotion in it, I feel. There's, there's a, a pathos of it. He turns to them and says, do you want to go away too? Do you sense that uh, uncertainty? Do you, do you sense that or read that perhaps as a challenge? Or are you caving? Are you done? Are you finding this too hard? Are you finding my demand too much? And there's one in the face of all of this defection who stands up and says, Simon Peter answers him and says, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. Aren't you impressed by that? That's deep insight, isn't it? But remember, this is chapter 6 of John, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter, and we're going to discover that this man who made such an open, declared commitment, when the chips are down and his neck could be in a noose, what does he do? Denies Christ, not once, not twice, but three times. Do you see why it's so important to understand that your salvation does not rest on your shoulders? Because if it does, there is no hope for any of us. It needs to rest on Jesus alone. And that's why Jesus said it's what I've been telling you, it's who I am, it's what my works point to. That's the understanding. This declaration that Peter makes in his, in his heart and in this moment is right, and he's saying, I'm all in. And look, we need to be all in. I'm not suggesting that we should be tentative because we know how weak and vulnerable we are. I'm suggesting we should step up. We should step out. We should be open in our commitment. 
And we need to be prepared to come to the foot of the cross again and again and say, my salvation does not rest on me. It rests on you. I believe you are the Christ. That's our hope. Not in us. In him. So it's a declaration they're all in. Put simply, they've heard him and they're willing to follow. And Peter says, I haven't changed my mind. So what is it that these men, through Peter's words, are agreeing to follow? And looking back over the chapter, it would seem that Peter is saying, we understand you. We're used to catching fish and killing them and cleaning them and selling them and eating them. We've had that contact with our food. And when you say life is in you, we believe that life is in you. Because, you see, you and I could read about Jesus outside the Scripture. We could read from such historians as Josephus, and we could discover that Jesus was a real person who lived in the first century A.D. We could even learn that he died as, some would call it, leading an insurrection, a rebellion against Roman law. We could read other angles and say, wow, there was all of this controversy that went, and it was Jewish leaders that bore a false witness, and they crucified an innocent man. But what you'll never get from that is what it means. Because what it means, friends, is that the one and only unique Son of God came into this world born of Mary miraculously, lived a completely perfect sinless life, and willingly went to the cross that while it was evil men who conspired against him, one of his own that betrayed him, what was accomplished on the cross for you and I through that horrific death was we gained life through Jesus. And if you were the only person on the planet, the price would be the same. And because he's God... It's the same for all of us. It covers our sin, all of it. We read that in John 3, verse 16. So he died that he could give his life to benefit us. And these verses are not describing, as I've said, communion. They're describing a relationship with Jesus that communion then celebrates, brings us back to the common ground that every one of us needs life in Jesus alone. It's the Spirit who gives life, we read in the Scripture. And the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And there are some of you who do not believe. And Jesus is saying, I want you to know I can't make it any clearer. This is as blunt and as bold as it can possibly get. No faith in me, no life in you. Faith in me, eternal life in you. That simple. God cannot love you more. He will not love you less than what he has done for you through the life, death of his unique son, Jesus. And when we hold the elements of communion, that is what we're celebrating. So Jesus has an odd answer, doesn't he? In uh, the next verse, because Jesus answers and said, didn't I choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
what do we take away from that? How, how do we put all of this together when Jesus is being so clear about who he is and then he points out that there's a betrayer, unidentified, but one of the 12 is a devil, has a devil within them, is in league with the devil is what it means, is doing the devil's work, not the, the work of Christ. Well, it all comes down to the choice you and I make the freedom that God gives us to make those choices. And so here are some applications. The first is that God has remarkable insight into who we really are. Our strengths and our weaknesses. It's as true for Peter, who he says, you're going to betray me three times later in the, in the, in the chapter, in the book. It's true for Judas, who is going to be betraying him. Peter's going to deny him. All of the rest are going to flee because he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep run away. He knows what Judas will do. He knows what we will do. He speaks openly about it, even though he doesn't identify him in this chapter. They know at this point that one of them is in league, but they don't know what that means. Well, here's part of what it means. Judas, just like the other 11, have walked with Jesus and they've, he's talked with Jesus. He's eaten with Jesus at the table. He's slept rough with him in a field. He's slept in villages. He's listened to him talk. He's watched him heal. Blind men who couldn't see, and they're now seeing. A deaf that couldn't hear, they're, they're now. The dead he raised. All of those things Judas saw. And yet what? Did not believe. It is possible for us to be in the presence of the eternal, holy, powerful God and still hit the pause button. Right? Possible. One wonders how it's possible. But here I want to draw not to human beings that remain unmoved and uncommitted, but I want you to see the gracious character of our God who is patient to them all is kind to them all, is faithful to them all. Isn't it remarkable that Jesus doesn't kick Judas to the curb? He lets him walk with them the whole journey. Why? Because he will not extinguish a glowing ember. He will not break a bent twig. He's going to give them time. He's going to give them opportunity. He's going to be patient. I don't know about you, but I need to lean into that this morning. I need to say, God, thank you for your patience. None of them deserved it. I don't deserve it either. It's not in me. It's in you. I need to worship the master who is patient, kind. Isn't it remarkable that speaking, acting, as Jesus does, that he let people walk away? After they'd taken what they wanted, listened and decided what they wanted was different, they walked away. He didn't strike them. He didn't speak ill of them. He didn't call judgment down on their heads. He was patient. Friends, I want to say that is a window into the person of Jesus who is revealing not only the heart of God, 
but the goodness, kindness, character, willingness that no one should perish, but all should come to eternal life. That's why he came. That's what he's doing. So as you watch Jesus, the questions remain. Will you two leave? Will you allow your troubles, your lack of benefit, your curiosity that is confused by some of the hard sayings of Jesus or the mysteries that you encounter within the scripture that just don't make sense? He is the source of true manna. He gives eternal life. See, this group of followers has stayed And as they stay with him and persist and follow him, they find a God who is consistent and gracious and merciful and kind. So what am I challenging you to do? In the first place, I'm challenging you to believe that Jesus is the Christ who came into the world for you. For you personally. Yes, for all, of course. But Jesus wants us to see it on an individual basis. It's for us. Secondly, I want to suggest that you need to admit that you're dead and have no life apart from him. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You cannot improve your way to heaven. You simply must receive his grace. And thirdly, I want you to boldly join Peter. Where else would we go? There's no life anywhere else. You alone, Master, Savior, Lord, have the words of life. And I believe you. That's the doorway to salvation, friends. To admit you need him, to believe in who he is, and to confess him with your mouth as you believe in your heart. Father God, today as we sit before you and we've walked through one of these very hard sayings of Jesus, we are so grateful that life is in you. We are so grateful that you have invited us to come and eat that you have told us that we should feed on you in the same way that we feed our bodies through the nutrition around us. Father, we thank spiritually that we can turn to you and find you completely satisfying. Life is in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.